In this week's Parsha, Parsha Toldot, we read about the iconic pair of twins in Jewish history, Yaakov and Esav, Jacob and Esau. We read about their conception and birth, how different they are, even from the womb. The narrative moves immediately into the transaction between Yaakov and Esav, when Esav sold his birthright to Yaakov for a bowl of soup. Time passes, and with the help of his mother, Yaakov deceives his father Yitzchak, Isaac, into giving him the firstborn blessing. Esav's response is to complain that his brother has supplanted him two times. He doesn't accept any personal responsibility for this. Instead, he becomes enraged at his brother and seeks to kill him. In the course of these stories, we also learn how the women Esau married bothered his parents. In an attempt to fix this problem, he married another woman without sending away the problematic ones. These stories raise several questions. Why didn't Esau see his failure as his own fault? Why did he place the blame for his failure upon Yaakov? Why did he feel that killing his brother Yaakov was the only solution to his problem? Why couldn't he just own up to his mistakes and work to reconcile and negotiate to restore his position in the family? Why does Esau believe that marrying another woman without divorcing the problematic ones, would solve his problem. If you come from a Christian background, you might have been exposed to a reading of the story where Jacob is depicted as the bad guy. A common Christian interpretation is that Jacob sinned by tricking his brother and father. They might even say that Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing that rightfully belonged to Esau. However, the Jewish interpretation is that Yaakov did what was appropriate and, and even necessary. Even when he had to deceive his father, he didn't want to do it, but the circumstances made it necessary, and his mother made it possible. But Yaakov, Jacob, is a man of truth, doing only what was necessary to preserve the family heritage and to carry on the spiritual blessing he received from his ancestors. So, an additional question we might ask is, why is the Christian view supportive of Esau and negative toward Yaakov? I have one other point to bring up that might seem unrelated. Thursday and Friday were Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the new month of Kislev. On Rosh Chodesh, the Torah requires Israel to offer a special sacrifice called a Musaf. Now, you can read all about it in Numbers 28, but this sacrifice includes a sin offering, a goat. On all other holidays, it says that that sin offering is to atone for you. But regarding Rosh Chodesh, it says instead that the sin offering is to Hashem. Why the difference in this sin offering for Rosh Chodesh? Perhaps we can answer that last question by reading an amazing Midrash from Breshit Rabbah. This Midrash is commenting on Genesis 1.16 in the story of the fourth day of creation. The verse says, And God made the two great luminaries, the greater luminary to dominate the, the day and the lesser luminary 
to dominate the night and the stars. Rabbi Yudan, in the name of Rabbi Tanchum, Ben Rabbi Chia, and Rabbi Pinchas, in the name of Rabbi Simon, said, after referring to both the luminaries as great, the first backtracks and blemished one of them by, st by stating the greater luminary to dominate the day and the lesser luminary to dominate the night. Okay, so it, it starts out by calling them the two great luminaries, but then it turns around and call, calls the moon lesser or small. This implies a story. What happened to the moon? Now, keep in mind that the Midrash is not attempting to teach us astronomical or scientific information. Instead, we should notice the amazing way the sages looked into the sky and saw how God's creation tells the story of redemption. The Midrash continues, Rather, this happened because it entered the territory of its fellow. Okay, the, the Midrash is telling us that the moon was originally a great luminary, like the sun. But because the moon infringed on the boundary of the sun, it was diminished. How so? Well, the Torah says that the sun should rule by day and the moon by night. But sometimes during the daytime, we look up in the sky and what do we see? The moon. The moon refuses to stay in its lane and in its territory. And as a consequence for this, God punished the moon by diminishing its light. Now, this bears out in the sky because if you notice, when the moon does appear during the daytime, it's never a full moon. It's only partial. The only time we see a bright and full moon is when it behaves itself by rising at sunset and setting at sunrise. Thus, it stands to reason that God punishes the moon by reducing it for infringing on the territory of the sun. Okay, the Midrash then goes on to explain what this has to do with the sin offering for Rosh Chodesh. Rabbi Pinchas said, regarding all the other offerings it is written, one he-goat for a sin offering. But for Rosh Chodesh it is written, one he-goat for a sin offering for Hashem. Said the Holy One, blessed be he, bring an atonement for me because I reduced the moon as I am the one who caused it to enter its fellow's territory. Okay, so in what way is the sin offering for Rosh Chodesh for Hashem? The Midrash interprets this to say something incredible. The sin offering is for Hashem because Hashem is the one, so to speak, who needs atonement. Now, keep in mind, this is all metaphorical language. Obviously, we know that Hashem does not sin. But, but that's what makes this Midrash pack such an incredible punch. Okay, what would Hashem need atonement for? Because he should never have punished the moon by reducing it. The moon did not deserve to be punished because God's the one who made the moon wander into daytime territory. The moon had no choice in the matter. Okay, the Midrash continues. Rabbi Levi, in the name of Rabbi Yosei Bar-Eli, says, It's natural for one who is great to count by the great, and the small to count by the small. 
Esav counts by the sun, the greater luminary, and Yaakov counts by the moon, which is lesser. All right, so now we've introduced a new factor to this analogy. The sun and the moon are like Esav and Yaakov. One is greater, one is lesser. One counts by the sun, meaning he uses a solar calendar, and the other uses a lunar calendar. Wait a second, Esav used a solar calendar? Where does Rabbi Levi get this idea? Now, some of you probably already know the answer, but hold that thought and we will come back to it. But Rabbi Levi just let us in on an incredible secret. This entire time, we thought Genesis 1.16 was talking about the sun and the moon. Turns out, it's really telling us the story of Yaakov and Esav. They were supposed to be two great luminaries, two identical twins. But one, Yaakov, was reduced. Why was he reduced? Because he entered the territory of his fellow. From his very birth, grasping the heel of his brother, to purchasing his birthright, to covering himself with goat skins because Esau was a hairy man. And the Hebrew uses the, the Hebrew term that the Torah uses for hairy man is, is Ish Sa'ir, which literally sounds like it means a goat man. Yaakov continually crosses the boundary into Esau's space, and as a result, he's been diminished. And yet, that punishment is unfair because God is the one who caused him to cross these boundaries. And this unfairness on God's part is why Israel brings a sin offering, a slaughtered goat, every Rosh Chodesh, when the moon is at its smallest, because that's when it's squarely in the territory of the sun. So Yaakov and Esau are like the sun and moon, just as the sun and moon appear to be the same size from the vantage point of earth, they're vastly different worlds. In the same way, Yaakov and Esau superficially appear to be twins, but they're about as different as people can be. Now, the fact that the sun and moon appear the same size from Earth, making perfect eclipses possible, is a coincidence that has no natural explanation. The reason that they appear the same size is because the sun is 400 times the distance from Earth and 400 times the diameter of the moon. Not 399, not 401, but 400. Physicist Alexander Polterok pointed out that there may be an allusion to this in the Torah. So after Yaakov wrestled with an angel until daybreak, Esau came to meet him and outnumbered him with 400 men. And 400 is also the gematria of the words Yedei Esav, the hands of Esav. And now another interesting connection I noticed in the story is the dimming of Yitzhak's eyes seems to correlate to the diminishment of the moon. Um, in Genesis 1.14, it calls the luminaries Meorot, 
me'orot, as luminaries. And the, the, the sages puzzled about how that word was oddly spelled without vavs. Now in Genesis 27, instead of just telling us that Yitzhak was blind, it says that his eyes were dimmed, me'orot, from seeing. And that word, me'orot, from seeing, is spelled exactly as the way uh, the same way as me'orot, luminaries. Now, in that same verse in Genesis 27:1, it refers to Esav as Hagadol, the greater. Now, I'd like to bring in another source to help us understand Esav's mindset. Shem Mishmuel, the teachings of Shmuel Bornstein of Sokachov in the early 20th century, points out that based on the sequence of events, it appears that Esau's marriage to the daughter of Ishmael was an attempt to solve his problems with Yaakov. Now, if something's not going right in your life, one of your first steps should be self-improvement. But Shem Mishmuel points out that Esau couldn't comprehend this. He couldn't possibly be the source of his own problems. Instead, he looked for an external cause, he laid the, the blame on his wives. Shemi Shmuel points out that this is hinted in Esau's name. Esau is related to the word ose, to make. So Esau means already made, complete. This reflects that Esau felt that there was no room for growth or no need for self-improvement. Esau reasoned that his inheritance problems must be because his wives were Canaanites, and Canaanites are cursed. So, therefore, he could have no blessed offspring to pass on his heritage. So, it, if he marries someone with a better lineage, well, then he can have a blessed heir. Marry an Ishmaelite, and problem solved. He'll now have a child with a proper pedigree. In contrast, Yaakov's name comes from the word for heal, representing lowliness. Yaakov was constantly striving to improve and make the most of his circumstances. Even when Yaakov's name was changed, he didn't become complete. His name was Israel because he wrestles with God, indicating not completion, but an ongoing process. Now, modern psychology has borne this idea out. Psychologist Carol Dweck explains that there are two ways of thinking about ability and talent. They are what we might call a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Dweck's work is very popular in the Jewish world, and she's cited by Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, among others. Dweck explains that People who accept a fixed mindset about ability and talent will never shoot for the stars. I mean, to them, ability and talent are things you're born with. And if you don't have them, you might as well just give up. On the other hand, people with a growth mindset realize that ability and talent are things you can develop through practice. They're the people who are constantly striving to improve because they know they can. These two perspectives, the fixed mindset and the growth mindset, are two sides of a spectrum, and, and each one of us has a tendency to lean toward one or the other. 
people who lean toward a fixed mindset will see failure as a permanent thing. You know, to people who have a growth mindset, failure is simply a chance to learn or, or pivot. A fixed-minded mi- fixed person will see any criticism as a personal attack. You know, instead of hearing, you made a mistake, they will hear it as, you are a mistake. The people who have a growth mindset realize that criticism is simply a chance to learn and improve. People with a fixed mindset will choose the easiest tasks and, and put in the least amount of effort possible. People with a growth mindset will take on challenging tasks and work hard to improve. When people from a, a fixed mindset encounter an obstacle, they give up. They don't see any point in trying to overcome the obstacle because they think that their capabilities are set in stone. On the other hand, people with a growth mindset view obstacles as a chance to experiment and and solve problems. While people with a fixed mindset focus on accomplishments that are static and measurable, people with a growth mindset focus on the journey of continual improvement. People with a fixed mindset are less likely to take creative risks. In contrast, people with a growth mindset see creative risks as an opportunity to innovate and improve. A person with a growth mindset is likely to be happier and more successful. We should try to cultivate such a mindset within our children. So instead of praising them for the gifts that they're born with, we should call them out when, you, when we see them striving, when we see them improving, and when we see them showing courage. Help them see that trait as their identity. Now, I, I think you get the point. A fixed mindset quits easily. It doesn't want to be challenged. It doesn't want to fail. It doesn't want to improve. A growth mindset never gives up. It seeks out challenges. It explores failures. It intentionally it hones its skills. Now, this dichotomy maps very well onto Esau and Yaakov and to their counterparts, the sun and the moon. Esau, the sun, represents a fixed mindset. But Yaakov, the moon, represents a growth mindset. Yaakov and the moon are called small. Being small means that you have room to grow. Esau and the sun are called great, suggesting that there is no room to grow. There is no room to improve. The sun's appearance always stays the same, but the moon's appearance is always changing. The word for year in Hebrew, shana, means repeat, because each solar cycle is the same pattern over and over again. The word for month Chodesh means renew because each month is a development. Its beginning is not like its end. Hesav was born hairy, representing full maturity. He was a baby, but he looked like a grown man, and that's why they called him Esav. All done. Yaakov was smooth-skinned, representing uh, youthfulness and future growth. The Torah describes Esau as a skillful hunter, literally one who knows trapping. And it uses the word yodea, 
one who knows. Now, in contrast, Yaakov is described as tum. And although Art Scroll generously translates that as wholesome, it literally means simple or lacking knowledge. Now, have you ever tried to give someone helpful information, but instead of listening, they keep repeating, I know, I know, I know. That's Asav. See, the key to improving is first acknowledging the limits of your knowledge. As Pirkei Avot teaches, a wise person learns from everyone. Now, there's one more important piece of information that will help fill out our understanding of the Midrash I quoted at the beginning of this teaching. Judaism sees in the relationship between Yaakov and Esav a foreshadowing of the conflict between the Jewish people and the Roman Empire, and by extension, Judaism and Christianity. For example, under Roman persecution, rabbinic writings often use the term Edom to, to refer to the Roman Empire to avoid arousing the wrath of the government. Now, you might ask, how could Rome come from Asav? I mean, are, are Romans then Semitic people? Doesn't it make more sense to suppose that uh, the Romans are descended from Yavan? Furthermore, we, we already know the national people of Asav. It's not the Romans, it's the Edomites. However, uh, there are a few explanations for this connection. The first and possibly the oldest explanation can be found in the Midrashim. They say that one of Esau's descendants, listed in the genealogies as Magdiel, founded the city of Rome. Now, the, the main difficulty with this explanation is that at this point, we're still historically hundreds of years before the official founding of Rome, which took place in about 750 BCE. According to Roman legend, Rome was founded by a man named Romulus. But I don't know, why not suppose that Romulus was a descendant of Magdiel and of Esav, even if the Romans as a whole were descendants of Yavan? Some later commentators don't identify the Romans as physical descendants of Esav, but they explain that the, the transfer of spiritual identity occurred through King Herod. Now, we know from, King, from history that King Herod was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau, and he was also the agent of Roman occupation in Judea. Perhaps the association between Rome and Esau began with the Jewish people's relationship with King Herod. Now, finally, some commentators believe that the connection began with Christianity, uh, just as Esau was a twin of Jacob, so Christianity emerged like a twin brother of, of Judaism. And as Christianity began to spread throughout the Roman Empire, the empire itself became associated with Esau. Now, personally, I do not find the last explanation compelling. Really, my favorite one is the first one. But regardless, the sages were just not bothered by the discrepancy of calling Rome Esav. They saw it as an obvious connection, if not historically, 
than at the very least symbolically. The relationship between Yaakov and Esav seemed to be an accurate foreshadowing of Israel's experience with the Roman Empire and the Jewish experience with Christendom. After all, Rome and Esav bear some interesting circumstantial resemblances. Just as Yaakov and Esav were twins, according to Rome's foundation myth, Romulus, the founder of Rome, had a twin brother named Remus, whom he killed. In Roman mythology, Romulus was fathered by Mars, the god of war, who is symbolized by the color red, hence the red planet being named Mars. That's why red became the dominant color of the powerful Roman military. The, the Torah also associates Esav with both the color red and violent tendencies. So could the personality of Mars, the, the red god of war, have come from a distant memory of the, the red-colored and warlike Esav? The, the interpreters see Esav not only as an essentially wicked man, but one with the outward appearance of righteousness. How else could Yitzhak have been so blind to Esav's wickedness? But Esav kept up this charade of righteousness through meaningless external details. For example, the Torah tells us that Esav got married at age 40, just like Yitzhak as if copying this detail about his father would make him seem like a true imitator. As one who is outwardly pious but inwardly corrupt, Esau is symbolized by the pig. Now, the pig is known for having only one of the two necessary kosher signs. He's got the external kosher symbol of split hooves, but he lacks the internal kosher symbol of chewing the cud. The pig is also symbolic of the Roman Empire. Yeshua even makes this association when he warns us not to cast our pearls before swine. He's talking about Rome. How else is Rome linked to Esav and Edom? Well, Psalm 137 says that the Edomites rejoiced when Babylon destroyed the first temple. The Romans went ahead and destroyed the second temple. Finally, there may even be a connection between Rome and Esau in the New Testament. In the book of Romans, Paul is guiding the Roman community through matters of distinction. And on, on the one hand, he's explaining to the community of Roman disciples why it's not necessary for a Gentile to convert and become Jewish. And on the other hand, he's explaining to them the nature of the chosen status of Israel and what it implies. In, make, in making this case to the Roman community, he, he made a big deal about the election of Yaakov over Esau. He tells the Romans in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 15, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, 
Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So in Paul's argument, Esau represents and symbolizes all Gentiles, which, you know, is a very common approach among the sages. But it could be that he made this point because the association between Esau and Rome was already well known. So now that we understand the connection, the association at least, between Rome and Esau, we can better appreciate the Midrash I quoted at the beginning about the sun and the moon. The Torah's lesson about the two great luminaries and the dance that we see them perform in the sky is more than just astronomy. They're telling the tale of Jacob and Esau. And what's more, the tale of Jacob and Esau foreshadows the struggle between Israel and Rome. And this is what Rabbi Levi meant when he said that Esau counts by the sun where Yaakov counts by the moon. The Romans use a purely solar calendar. The Jewish people follow a predominantly lunar calendar. When the the Roman Empire converted to Christianity, they retained the solar Julian calendar. And the only change they made hundreds of years later was to make it even more accurately track with the sun. So let's consider Esau one more time in his fixed mindset. Why is this so important and why is a growth mindset such an essential part of a Jewish outlook on the world? Remember, a fixed mindset always looks to external reasons for a person's suffering. A person with a fixed mindset has a victim mentality. There are, sadly, many victimized people in this world. But being a victim is not the same as having a victim mentality. Joseph is a perfect example example of this. Was Joseph victimized? Yes, over and over again. But he never had a victim mentality. He considered every misfortune and mistreatment he experienced as an opportunity for personal growth and divine redemption. He refused to place blame on others, even when, by any objective measure, they deserved it. This absolute rejection of a victim mentality propelled him to success and enabled him to improve the lives of others. Joseph had a Jacob-like growth mindset. This is the, the mentality that's preserved the Jewish people through ages of persecution. Today, anti-Semites will point to industries where Jews seem to be overrepresented, and, and they accuse us of having some unfair advantage. But in practically every case, we were cornered into those industries because of persecution. And instead of letting it paralyze us, we innovated and we seized opportunities for growth. Today in America, there's a hierarchy of victimhood. I mean, if you can claim a victim status, you gain authority in this culture. But Jewish people 
while we have been victimized, we refuse to remain victims. And so we are disinvited from this fixed mindset hierarchy. The state of Israel was founded in the wake of the Holocaust on the premise that the Jewish people refused to remain victims. And as a result, today, Israel is stigmatized by those with a fixed mindset. Now consider how some people af- apply a fixed mindset to faith. There are many believers who reason that there's nothing one can do to please God or improve one's status or standing before him. Calvinists assert that humans are completely depraved and yet then benefit from the perfection of Jesus by faith. A person who holds that view has not much to do except hang on until the rapture or until their life is over and they go to heaven. That's a fixed mindset. Another example of a fixed mindset in faith is amillennialism, the dominant Christian view that We've already arrived at the Messianic era, that the kingdom of heaven is the church. Now, if that's the case, then where do we go from here? There's no more process involved in redeeming the world. So could it be that the fixed mindset could be the reason why some Christians see Esau as the victim and and Jacob as the bad guy in our Parsha? It's food for thought. In Judaism, we apply a growth mindset to faith, whereby our entire purpose in this life is to grow and improve. Life consists of nothing but a series of tests and struggles, each of which is an opportunity to reap eternal benefits. And that's what this world is for. So perhaps you feel bombarded by problems in life. Uh, some, some of them you could justifiably point a finger at the perpetrator. But our faith tells us, gamzu litova, this too is for the good, which doesn't mean that we should be content with suffering, but that every difficulty we encounter is an opportunity to overcome, to make progress, and to transform if not your your external circumstances, at least your own mind. So in the in the modern era, one of the best examples of of the Jewish Jacob-like growth mindset is Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl. He once said, "We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread." They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. So in Judaism, we we also apply a collective growth mindset to history as we eagerly push forward and strive for the messianic era to seek the kingdom as our master Yeshua commanded. Yes, this world is flawed. And that's the point. <laughs> that's why you're here. You're, you're here, especially you disciples of Yeshua, of the Messiah, to be an agent of change and to bring about the messianic kingdom. 
You know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe contrasted the growth mindset to the fixed mindset when he said this, if you see what needs to be repaired and how to repair it, then you have found a piece of the world that God has left for you to complete. But if you only see what is wrong and what is ugly in the world, then it's you yourself that needs repair. In either case, it's impossible that you should ever see something and there is nothing you can do. Well, today we looked at the Midrash on the sun and the moon. We saw how their dance in the sky teaches us about Yaakov and Esav. How the moon refused to stay locked in its territory and as a result was diminished. And yet the moon adapts, grows, changes, and represents God's plan of redemption. We saw how Yaakov means done. His fixed mindset caused him to blame others for his suffering, whereas Yaakov saw his hardships as opportunities. We learned the connection between Esau and Rome and how the twin sons of Yitzhak and Rivka foreshadow the struggle between two kingdoms. And finally, we discussed the importance of a growth mindset in a Jewish approach to, to faith and redemption. The Midrash goes on to make some additional comparisons between Esau and Yaakov to the sun and the moon. It says, Just as the sun only appears in the day, but the moon appears by day and by night, Esau has only a share in this world, but Yaakov has a share in this world and the world to come. When the light of the sun is shining, the moonlight seems insignificant, but once the sun goes down, the moonlight illuminates the world. Similarly, in the Messianic era, Yaakov's light of redemption will shine, but Esau's light will be gone. As Isaiah 60 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Behold, darkness covers the earth. So going forward, I want to challenge you to ask yourself how you can adopt a growth mindset both in your life and in your faith. Furthermore, how can our community, Beth Emanuel Messianic Synagogue, become more growth-minded to overcome challenges and turn difficulties into opportunities? And I want to bless you uh, and include myself in this blessing that Hashem would give us the presence of mind to see our current struggles as opportunities, not to blame external causes for our suffering. Our master told Pontius Pilate, you would have no power if it were not given to you by heaven. May you and I say the same thing to every force that opposes us and to grab every obstacle by the heel and transform it into redemption.